Welcome back to The Wise Man's Page, the daily podcast where we read Patrick Rothfuss's The Wise Man's Fear, page by page. This is page 612. Holy God, Martin choked. Dear holy God. I set the knife against the sentry's throat and surveyed the camp. Their military efficiency was falling apart as they began to panic. One of the wounded men continued to scream, high and piercing over the grumbling thunder. I saw one of the bowmen searching the ridgeline with hard eyes. I drew the knife across the sentry's throat, but nothing seemed to happen. Then the bowman looked puzzled and raised his hand to touch his own throat. It came away lightly smeared with blood. His eyes grew wide and he began to shout. Dropping his bow, he ran to the other side of the low wall, then back, trying to escape, but not knowing where to run. Then he regained his composure and began desperately searching the ridgeline all around the camp. He showed no signs of falling. I frowned, set the knife against the dead sentry's neck again, and leaned against it hard. My arms trembled, but the knife began to move again, slowly, as if I were trying to cut a block of ice. The bowman's hands flew to his neck, and blood poured over them. He staggered, stumbled, and fell into one of the fires. He thrashed wildly, scattering burning coals everywhere, adding to the confusion. I was deciding where to strike next when lightning lit the sky, showing me a clear, stark picture of the body. The rain had mingled with the blood, and it was everywhere. My hands were dark with it. Unwilling to maim his hands, I rolled him over onto his stomach and struggled to remove his boots. Then I refocused myself and sawed through the thick tendons above the ankles and behind the knees. It crippled two more men, but the knife was moving more and more slowly, and my arms ached with the strain of it. The corpse was an excellent link, but the only energy I had was the strength of my body. Under these conditions, it felt more like I was cutting wood than flesh. It had been scarcely more than a minute or two since the camp had been alerted. I spat water and took a moment's rest for my trembling arms and exhausted mind. I eyed the camp below, watching the confusion and panic build. A man emerged from the large tent at the base of the tree. He was dressed differently from the others, wearing a hauberk of bright chainmail that came nearly to his knees, with a coif covering his head. He stepped into the chaos with a fearless grace, taking everything in at a glance. He snapped orders I couldn't hear over the sound of rain and thunder. His men calmed, settling back into their positions, and took up their bows and swords. As I watched him stride across the encampment, I was reminded of... something. He stood in plain view, not bothering to crouch behind one of the protective walls. He gestured to his men, and something in that motion was terribly familiar. That's the page. I'm Jeremy. I'm Jordana. I'm Nick. Hands. Awful. Ghoulish. This is wretched. Yeah, hands. No kidding. Really horrifying <laughs> stuff. And like, I think part of what makes it so horrifying is that Rothfuss's descriptions are so sensually evocative. Like, I... You know, I have chopped wood in my time and I have seen a block of ice and I can imagine what it would be try to what it would be what what it would be like to try to like force a knife through a block of of ice with only my own body weight. And so I can really imagine what it feels like for Cloth to be doing this stuff, except he's doing it to a human corpse. And when he does it, he's like slitting a guy's throat. And it's so much worse, so much worse than like just somebody coming up and slitting a guy's throat because 
first of all, Quilts doesn't get him the first time, right? He, only, he So the guy knows what's going to happen to him. He goes, he's like, oh my God, someone's using magic to like cut my throat or something. But where are they? He like, there's nothing he can do about it except wait to die. It's really awful. Yeah, it's really very horrifying. And like someone having their tendons cut <laughs> through magic, just awful to think about. You know, interesting that Quoth draws the line at the hands, but I think the hands you know indeed to understand. Yeah. Why do we think he draws the line at hands? Because hands are valuable to him. Yeah. He just can't countenance like maiming somebody's hands. Even in this situation, it's just like too much even for him because of how much he values his own hands. I also feel like maiming someone's hands wouldn't kill them. No, but it would make them useless in a fight. Like oh, you, fair, can't, yeah. you can't draw a bowstring without your, your index and your, your middle finger. And you can't really hold a sword without your last two fingers. So I see. But he, he could he could take four more guys out of the fight by maiming their hands. Yeah, I want to talk about something you touched on, Jeremy, and that's that we we get the reactions from Quoth's victims. I think it's much easier to to read this passage when he's just sort of like doing it and we hear people falling, but we start to to see people's reactions. And as you say, this guy like notices something's going on. Quoth doesn't quite get it the first time. So he reacts, freaks out, regains his composure, and then Quoth gets it. And you know, and we see the realization dawn on this guy and he falls into the fire. Uh, and thrashes around. And then he's a bit. thrashing around, burning to death. Yeah, this puts me in mind of uh, a post that circulated recently was like a supercut of all the the torture kills from the Punisher game for PS2, which I do remember Jeremy oh, yeah. playing in your basement <laughs> for many hours uh, when we were when we were young. And I remember at the time Absolutely. like hooting and hollering with you at like how gory and funny and goofy it was. But watching the supercut now, it was really like uncomfortable because the people like are clearly struggling to escape. Like a lot of the time in video games, there's no self-preservation in in the mooks that you're slaughtering. Like, you know, I'm playing Elden Ring right now. And, you know, in Elden Ring, everyone is just like single-mindedly trying to kill you with no cause to their own, like no thought to their own safety. But like what was so awful to watch in the Punisher game was like the people struggling to escape the meat grinder and stuff that they're, that they're being jammed yeah, into. Or you're like pushing a guy's head up against like a motorbike wheel that's going. And part of the mini game is that you're not trying to kill the people you're torturing. You're trying to scare them into telling you what you want to know. So you as the player are trying not to kill them. You're just trying to like torture them. You're trying to hurt them and scare them, but not kill them. Yeah. So it's, it's a failure state to actually watch the the kills and the torture sequences in that game which is a bit, a bit of context that was missing from the supercut that i was watching but like i think that's that's telling and that's an important bit of something to think about like when we're reading this scene is that oh it's just so awful to think about like i'm i'm reading this book this time around with with a a, a wider eye to the experiences of other characters of minor characters of the hespies of the story and because of that i'm trying to like have empathy for everybody including these faceless goons that Quoth is is murdering and like it's really awful this is a really awful sequence to have to sit through yes to me it calls to mind the difference between violence in an action movie and violence in a horror movie i love action movies i love horror movies and i like movies that are like bloody and violent you know i i i have enjoyed all those violent martial arts movies that come out of like singapore you know, I, I like Tarantino, but I think that the difference 
between like violence and an action movie that often have body counts in like the dozens, if not hundreds of faceless goons is that you don't tend to linger on the wounds that are inflicted and the pain that is caused. And I think the more you do that, the more you kind of start to linger on like, what is it like when someone gets their hand cut off or like, you know, when someone gets like shot in the gut, that's when you start to get out of action movie territory and into like horror or, uh, or like drama. Because I mean, I'm now thinking of like the famous opening sequence of of Saving Private Ryan that is like the the 20 minute long like D Day invasion, which is quite graphic and bloody. It's like more graphic than any other scene in the movie. You know, there's guys like screaming and weeping and calling for their mothers as their guts are like falling out of them. Its purpose is to evoke a different kind of emotional response, right? Like Spielberg is not trying to make you think, you know, man, war is cool. Look what a badass Tom Hanks is. It's like no, war is hell. Look at these young men being fed into a meat grinder just to gain a foothold on a beach. And I think that similarly, Rothfuss is critiquing or examining the idea of the fantasy protagonist as like, you know, swashbuckling action hero or mighty sorcerer who can, you know, fell a dozen men with nothing but his magic. He's like, yeah, Foth can do that. This is what it looks like. This is the human consequence of that. Yeah, it bad. <laughs> it's also worth noting, we might even have a slightly different read on this scene. Like if Quoth had a personal reason to kill them, like if Quoth was doing this to the Chandrian, who he knows for sure killed his parents, you know, I would might I might be a little bit more gung-ho about it. I might be going, yeah, like you show Haliax who's boss, but these guys haven't done anything to Quoth. Quoth is killing them for money, essentially. He's a he's a paid mercenary. Doesn't feel very moral. Yeah, and I have a sneaking suspicion that we're going to learn that these guys maybe weren't so bad and maybe didn't deserve to have their tendons cut uh, and be helplessly slaughtered from a distance. Like, no wonder Martin is horrified. Like, I think even Martin, like, a, you know, a seasoned killer was like, you know, I didn't sign up for this. Although, uh, to his credit, he keeps his head uh, in the, the ensuing sequence. So we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more in Martin's uh, reaction. Yeah, we don't get, like, we get Martin's reaction to an extent, but not really. Like, we just get what he said. I mean, you get lots more on the next couple of pages. Yeah. If anything, we get more of Martin's reaction than anybody else's. Tempe doesn't... Well, only Martin sees it. Well, Tempe's still around. He's with them, is he not? Oh, that's true. Tempe sees it too, yeah. I don't even remember what Tempe thinks of this. Yeah, I guess we'll find out. So in the next couple of pages, Tempe doesn't really remark on it. Martin's remark suggests that either he's just using it as an idiom the way that like a lot of us would, or that he is religious. Yeah, well... Because he's saying, holy God. So that's Tellu? If it's a... If it's one? He does pray to Tellu in the ensuing pages. Okay. He does very explicitly prays to Tellu. And you know what? It might not it might not even be that he's particularly God-fearing, but Quoth has put the fear of God into him. As they say, there are no atheists in foxholes, you know, and anyone who grew up raised in the church might instinctively fall back on those comforting, familiar prayers when faced with something that for all he's, you know, for all he knows, Quoth is like a demon wizard in league with the devil. Like, Is there a devil in this case? Like in the Talon religion, is there... In Canis, there's like... But the does he like story. punish people? No, but it, the devil also doesn't really punish people in the Christian faith either. Oh, okay. Like not in the Bible anyway. Yeah. Then why are people so afraid of him? 
Well, because lots of Good other question, religious, <laughs> lots of other religious texts establish that the that hell is a place of punishment, and that Satan, who was Lucifer, lives there with a bunch of other demons and tortures you for all eternity. But that's not really in the Bible. Oh, I see. Okay, right? hell hell doesn't show up in the in the text of the Old or New Testament, really. The, and the devil who appears there the adversary there's no devil either there's an adversary occasionally there is a reference to the adversary but there's no devil well my understanding is the hebrew and greek words that we take to mean satan or the devil translate as something like adversary it's not clear that it's all the same character even in the original text but that character such as he is appears as like a tempter right he tempts eve he tempts Jesus. Well, even even that serpent, as I understand it, and we should really be bringing uh, our friend from Two Geek Soup on to talk about about this stuff. But uh, even that serpent is only just a serpent. Like even that serpent is not explicitly the the adversary. Yeah, only later is it is it all conflated into one character. You know, capital A adversary, the devil, who is also Lucifer. Like that's that's all various christian mystics and other texts that kind of come oh. later it's, it's a retcon is what it is uh it's a long series of retcons fan fiction my understanding is that a lot of our contemporary notions of hell come from dante who was basically writing fan fiction starring himself yeah yeah self-insert fic where he gets to meet all his heroes yeah but and like also milton right paradise lost is hugely influential oh, true in that. the english-speaking yeah. world on on the character of satan and, and the nature of hell I think those are like the two big ones, the Inferno and and Milton. And like Faust, I think is the other like big kind of European Christian text that deals very directly with the devil. Indeed. Back to the page. Is there anything else we want to talk about on this page? Actually, that was no, no, I don't. Yeah, no. But mailbag? Yes, mailbag. Uh, This letter is entitled, Quoth's Tragic Flaw. And uh, on a personal note, this is also a wedding update. So uh, we will finally get the conclusion to the wedding saga. Wedding update. Wedding update. Rachel writes, hey, guys, one of the themes you have identified in your close reading is Quoth's tendency not to think things through before acting. I definitely agree that there are lots of situations where this is the case, binding the air in his lungs to the outside when he was young, accusing Davy of selling his blood, arguably building the fire to attract the Dracus, although in his defense, he spent a lot of time thinking through how much Denerezin should kill it. He just miscalculated. However, I don't think it's fair to accuse Quoth of doing this all the time or making it a blanket statement. In his relationship with Denna in particular, the opposite is true. He overthinks things to the point of detriment, worrying about how she would feel if he spoke his mind and if he told her how he felt if he held her hand. With Auri too, Quoth is very gentle in his approach with her, and spends a lot of time gaining her trust and thinking how best to befriend her. He refuses to allow Devi access to the archives despite overwhelming temptation because he thinks of the consequences and knows what this would do to his friendship with Auri. He plans his ring heist meticulously and talks it through with his friends so many times that they start to get exasperated. I think that Quoth's failure to always think of the consequences of his actions is a very valid take and one that I hadn't really picked up on before. I just thought I'd write a note in his defense so we don't commit the fallacy of accusing him of this tragic flaw in situations where it doesn't necessarily apply. Thanks for all you do, and thank you for your help in wedding planning. I love your suggestions, and am planning to incorporate telling you three times somewhere in my vows. Signed, Rachel. Nice! I'm so excited! (laughs) I don't get to attend this wedding, but I'm excited for it. Yes, congratulations a thousandfold. At least three times. 
Uh, I agree with you that we, you know, it's not his tragic flaw in the way that like Oedipus has a tragic flaw. He doesn't have like a tragic flaw in the classical sense where it's, it's something he always commits. And I think you point out some really important and interesting exceptions to the rule in particular, his conduct with Auri, I feel is like the, his most heroic selfless and, and at his best when he's being his best self is when he's working with Auri. But I still, I stand by my, in our assessment that if he must be assigned a tragic flaw, it is this, uh, it, it seems to be the thing that recurs that continues to get him into trouble. And, you know, I, I, as you pointed out, he doesn't commit this flaw every single time. It's just like the flaw that seems to bring him the most tragedy. I'm maybe not the best person to articulate the significance of the tragic flaw or like even the definition of the tragic flaw. So I'm hoping Jeremy will jump in and rescue me here. But my feeling is that the tragic flaw is sort of like the character flaw that you can point to, to like most broadly countermand the heroism or like the one thing that they can't quite overcome like from from the perspective of a of like literary analysis not necessarily like a rule with the character yeah i i think that's right yeah and i mean it's also it's just like an an old-fashioned way of thinking about these things like shakespeare's dramas are really good example the tragedies because those tragedies are driven by the fact that every character in them has some like one kind of overriding personal failing that ultimately results in their doom. You know, Othello's jealousy and his paranoia are what drive him to murder Desdemona and what drive him to believe Iago. Macbeth's ambition is what drives him to murder. Uh, also his, his real sin is being the ultimate wife guy. You know, Hamlet's prevarication and indecision are, are his, uh, you know, Lear's, pride and his need to be to be sort of adored by his by his daughters is his i think he could argue argue that romeo and juliet's is is hopeless love but in the case of quoth i don't think it's fair to assign him one tragic flaw but i do think that he is a well-rounded and compelling character who has personality flaw he has flaws plural and i don't think any one of them is like his ultimate weakness that always gets him into trouble he has several personal failings that often combine to get him into trouble i think that his his sometimes his overconfidence his reckless belief in his own cleverness is certainly one of them and it's one that there's lots of examples we can point to but so is his vengefulness right his his need to get revenge and his willingness to do pretty dreadful things like setting a guy on fire to get it that's another you know he has he has others i don't care to discuss them all in in exhaustive detail but i i just want to say that like i think that i agree with our letters author and that i don't think that he has one overriding flaw that is the cause of all his problems but i do think he is a compelling character because he has flaws that are recognizable that cause him problems in the text and that are relatable, right? Like they're, they're human flaws. It's not, it's not like a magical weakness, like Superman's aversion to kryptonite. It's, it's like, this is a character failing, you know? And I think in defense of Superman, I think that you could argue that one of Superman's less explored weaknesses is his determination to do the most good for the most people. Like if you really want to put Superman in trouble, you throw a bus off a bridge on one side of Metropolis and you cross a plane on the other side. You can only do, oh my God. you can only save one of those. 
Well, he can save one and then he can turn the world backwards, therefore turning back time and uh, then go rescue the other one. Well, if he does that, then he's caused the time paradox because the first thing will still happen. No, no, he's he's already saved them, though. Not if he turns back time. No, but he saves them and then he turns back time. Right, but then they're not saved anymore if he turns the time back. I agree with Jeremy. Also, this is off the topic of (laughs) most things and let's move on. End of the page? End of the page. I guess so. Uh, Jordana, we have a uh, we have a tradition that we do at the end of a page. Oh, right. Uh, where this is where we talk about things that we don't know about. I can't remember what it is. I feel like where we talk about things we don't know about is like a good portion <laughs> of the podcast, actually. <laughs> Maybe you do, but I know everything. Uh, and I'll know even more on tomorrow's page. Um, the Wish. Wish.